We live in an increasingly isolated world. Hello, I'm Brent Siddle, and today's guest on the God Story podcast is psychologist Todd Hall, who's been researching human relationships and ways of connecting for many years. He argues that real human growth comes through relational knowledge and strong connections. Todd is Professor of Psychology at Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University, where he teaches courses on the integration of psychology and theology. He's a faculty affiliate at the Harvard Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University and a founding partner at Flourishing Metrics. His latest book from IVP InterVarsity Press America is called The Connected Life, The Art and Science of Relational Spirituality. And Todd joins me now on the show to talk all about disconnection and reconnecting and things like that. Todd, hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Brad. I'm really excited to have this conversation. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. Now, what's the importance of connections for all of us, be they family, school, church, whatever? Right. They are so important, Brent. And it goes back to early connections in particular with what we call attachment figures or caregivers, right? Parental figures are the prototype of that, but people who care for us when we're young, those connections, the quality and health of those connections early on really form, they shape us at a very deep level and form what I call the implicit self. In other words, they shape how we feel about ourselves at a very deep emotional level and what we expect at a gut level of relationships in terms of, you know, what we, in terms of how we expect relationships to work, especially with authority figures. And so they then become sort of a blueprint or template in our mind, and they operate outside of conscious awareness, which is why they're so powerful and why this is so important and kind of guide how we how we relate to God as well as people. So this also operates in our relationship with God. Yes, uh, you make this point in the book. I found it fascinating. But how does a disconnection with others lead often to a disconnection with God? Right. It's these experiences again with parental figures, attachment figures form this template, like I said. So in attachment theory, we refer to this as internal working models. And so they, again, they operate it outside of conscious awareness and form this template or filters. Another word, I, I sometimes call them attachment filters because they filter our experiences, uh, particularly with authority figures. And God is obviously an authority figure, right? And so, you know, we bring all of our humanness to our relationship with God. That's one of, one of the points I make in the book, Brent, is, you know, sometimes there's this idea in the church that, you know, there's that we have a psychological part of us that deals with human beings, right? And then there's a sort of separate spiritual part that deals with God, and, and they're very separate. And that's really not the case, right? It's, it's all sort of integrated, and we bring all of our humanness to our relationship with God. And so those experiences shape how we experience God. And there's actually a a lot of research that provides evidence for that. And it's also something I, I've seen with clients and doing therapy for 25 years now. And that's part of what led to me doing this work and writing this book. You grew up in the 1970s, as did I, in a time of increasing disconnection with uh, with authority figures. And uh, you describe yourself as a latchkey kid. Right. Yeah. What's a latchkey kid for those of us who don't remember the 1970s? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a term for yeah, kids that went home from school, uh, you know, and and parents weren't there. And so you had to use a key to get into the house. <laughs> oh, I and think that was that was my situation. Yeah, yeah. And how how did that influence you inform you? Yeah, it led so I tell a little bit of the story in the in the beginning um that also, you know, led to 
to writing the book and just to my whole kind of life trajectory, really, that my mom struggled a lot with um, pretty significant mental health issues growing up. And then my parents split up when I was pretty young, about nine years old. And um, and even before that, I was, you know, as you mentioned, a latchkey kid. And so I'd go to school, come home, let myself in. And so there was just a lot of disconnection in in my family. And, and that did shape me and led to difficult, painful kinds of experiences that I later had to work through. And they impacted my relationship with God. And I tell a little bit about that story as well, which is pertinent to your, your last question. It, it shaped, you know, I think a time when I got to college and I'd become a Christian, I was, you know, committed and serious and trying to grow, but I hit this wall, this point where I just felt very distant from God. And there was a big disconnect or gap, if you will, or split between what I knew about God in my head and how I experienced God. Yeah, I think I was one of the few, probably one of the few kids in my school in the 70s who wasn't a latchkey kid. Um, yeah, it was becoming the norm by then, right? It, it was, but it was strange for me because I used to go and play at other kids' houses and they'd be the only ones there with their brothers and sisters. Mum and dad were both working. Right. And I found right. that very weird at the time. I couldn't relate to that at all, but there we go. Yeah. So we've moved on since the 70s, and I feel we've got even more disconnected. But why are we seeing a rise, such a rise in depression and disconnectedness in our culture today? Right. Yeah, I think a lot of that, Brent, goes back to the breakdown of the family, increase in divorce rate. And so I, I talk about this in, in the book um, that really in the last 40 to 50 years. So this is what I talk about as the connection crisis. There's been a fragmentation of the family, so increase in divorce rate increase in cohabitating couples that are less stable, single parent families. Um, also just a de decrease in community and, and what Robert Putnam calls social capital, which he documented in his landmark book called Bowling Alone that people may be familiar with. So I think those are kind of the roots of just, you know, community and then family in particular, which is where these attachment relationships happen. Right. And um, so that's part of why I tell my story. Um, to to demonstrate i mean it really was uh kind of a microcosm of what was happening you know in the nation this growing disconnection of uh you know just divorce and disconnection in the family and so all of that i think has led to also an increase in mental health issues you know in the last 40 50 years and particularly probably in the last 20 years just a lot of increase in depression and anxiety you know and then of course the pandemic is just sort of um led to the perfect storm where it's made a lot of that worse. Yes. How has involvement in community and community work declined in the States over the last few decades? Right. Putnam documents a lot of that, that just um, decrease in people just being involved in their community. And, you know, I so one of the stories I tell in the book about this is my father-in-law is a member of the Lions Club, which is one of these, you know, communities that, that, that uh, they or, you know, organizations that uh, charities gives back to community. They do a lot of great charity work. They raise money for um, uh, a lot of work around, you know, vision and eyesight and helping people get glasses and things like that. And um, I've never been part of an organization like that. I talk about, you know, most of my friends my age have never been a part of that. That sort of thing has really declined. Um, obviously, there's there's other forms of community emerging online, and there's some good things there, but there's there's also really kind of a breakdown in, you know, face to face community and involvement. Uh, so yeah, there, one of the things Putnam talks about too is a decrease in things like people having friends over for dinner. That's something that's decreased over the, you know, the last 50 years. There's just much more kind of isolation. 
part of that I think is busyness, um, you know, uh, just the the work burnout and, you know, working many more hours than probably was typical 50 years ago. So there's a lot of factors that contribute, I think. In what ways is our culture struggling with pain, I wonder? A lot of ways, yeah. I think um, I think it goes back to these early attachment wounds like we've talked about. There's just a, a lot of, again, disconnection and insecure attachment and more trauma um, that then uh, just, you know, shapes people in very profound ways. So when, when there is secure attachment, you know, in the home, and so what I mean by that is, you know, parental figures, caregivers who are emotionally attuned and responsive. And so the child feels known and accepted, um, you know, that leads to positive outcomes in, in basically every area of life. And so when the, the opposite is what we call insecure attachment, there's several different forms of that. But when that develops be, due to parental figures, caregivers being, you know, either neglectful or abusive in, you know, cases where there's trauma, especially, um, or maybe they're, the parents are highly anxious themselves. That leads to this insecure attachment, which again is internalized. It's this deep gut level sense that people are not going to be there for me, um, that I'm on my own, those kinds of things. And so that's, you know, there's a lot of emotional pain around that. And then that impacts how people relate and the quality of relationships, the relationships they're able to develop, you know, going forward. Uh, so it leads to more unhealthy relationships and just more pain unless unless they heal and grow, unless there's a transformation process at some point. Okay, well that's the disconnection. Let's talk about the reconnecting. How do we how did you personally discover the relational or connecting approach? So yeah, it was basically originally through I mean I think I saw some of this in scripture, but where I really experienced it first was through psychology and psychotherapy. And, you know, one way that I was really blessed is my uh, pastor that I had early on encouraged me to, to think about psychology and go into psychology. So I started checking that out in college and really kind of fell in love with it and saw that it seemed like it was addressing some things that ministry training at the time 30 years ago was not addressing. And so I thought, because I was thinking of going into the pastorate, but I decided, you know, I'm going to go into psychology. So I went to grad school and then got into therapy as a result of that. And that's where I really, you know, first experienced some of this deep transformation, you know, through relationships and then just, you know, studying psychology. And then, of course, became a therapist. And, you know, so I've been on both sides of the couch and I've been doing therapy for over 25 years and and really have had the privilege of experiencing that on that side of the couch with my clients and seeing that, but also in my own life. Yes. In what ways are researchers finding that connection heals? I mean, I think you have a, a, a bit in your book about schizophrenia and the impact of connection on uh, the treatment of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's just, you know, some general research now showing that relational connection is very foundational for healing, you know, in a, a lot of different ways. And so I, I do reference one study where um, uh, a re relational form of therapy was compared to sort of treatment as as usual which basically was just sort of focused on medication and and it had better better outcomes that's not to say there's not a, a biological component definitely for schizophrenia and some disorders like that and that you know medication is very helpful and important for many things like that but connection in community and friendships and and therapy can still be very helpful for people who are suffering with you know any kind of 
disorder, even if it's just helping them, you know, support them through, uh, you know, the process of, of getting on medication and getting, you know, um, moving forward through that. But for a lot of struggles and emotional pain, it's really the primary way of, of healing, you know, mm -hmm. including relationship with God. That's one of the things I talk about too. It's, it's not just, you know, with, with people, we can have new experiences with God directly that transform us as well. But God also chooses to use people, right, in a very fundamental way to bring about healing. Okay, well, we're living in a time of unprecedented isolation due to the pandemic, and people are still, I think, reluctant to go out or can't go out. I know in New Zealand, people's social fabric has disintegrated, really. A lot of the clubs and things that they were members of have been disbanded or aren't able to continue. How right. how on earth do we deal with this? How do we as individuals in a society become reattached to family, society, whatever, at a time when so much is working against it? Right. Yeah, it's a big it's a big challenge. I think the good news is as a result of the pandemic, which has been so devastating across the world, there is, I think, a new emerging conversation about mental health that hasn't happened before. Um, you know, here here in the United States, I think in the corporate, you know, sort of world, there's a a growing conversation that is addressing the need to look at employee well-being and mental health. It's a huge issue, uh, I think, really all across the world. So I think that is helping. So I think the first step is just being aware of the importance of relationships and and mental health, and that we need connection. It is a fundamental human need, and uh, you know, in families, in communities and in the workplace as well. Yes, and you write about uh, spiritual connection and the importance of, of being part of a spiritual community, don't you? I, and I think you use this term deep growth. Deep growth. Right. What What is deep growth and how how do we grow spiritually in community? Right, so, so with deep growth, what I'm talking about is the need to change and heal at this implicit level, right? So... So this kind of ties back to, I talk about two ways of knowing in one of the chapters, right? So there's explicit knowledge, or sometimes we call that head knowledge. And then there's this gut level or implicit knowledge. Sometimes we call that heart knowledge. And so deep growth is really about changing the implicit self, changing these deep internal working models that come from these early relationships, but you know they're constantly being updated. And so that happens through new relational experiences. And really, it's these two ways of knowing working together, which I call the knowledge spiral. So there's, you know, two ways to look at that or two parts of that. Um, you know, one is um, what I talk about is we need to feel ideas, right? So that's this, you know, top down integration that ideas, theology, for example, conceptual understandings of scripture and God are very important. They provide sort of the parameters of the moral compass, right, for how we should live our lives. But those ideas need to sink down into our heart, right, in order to shape how we actually live our lives and how we relate. And so we need to feel these ideas. And so that happens through new relational experiences. Um, so one of the ways I describe transformation in the book is that we are loved into loving. It doesn't happen primarily directly through head knowledge. It happens through relationships, through loving experiences. We're loved into loving. And so that's, you know, feeling these ideas. And then when we have these new experiences... We need to interpret the experiences. That's the bottom-up integration. Uh, or, um, you know, we need to reflect on our experiences, and that helps us crystallize the experience and, and sort of helps it to take root, if you will. Um, so, but yeah, I think both of those need to 
work together to lead to deep growth. If and, and again, what I mean by that is is really changing at a fundamental level how we feel about ourselves and how we relate to others and becoming more loving. What's the importance of story and of us telling our story? Why does deep growth require us telling our story indeed? Yeah, thank you for asking that, Brand. That's a great question. Um, it relates very, very closely. Story really is a form of implicit knowledge or implicit relational knowledge. It, it's, it operates in that code, if you will. And so hearing stories help us to feel ideas, right? Because you know, so I talk about this in the book and give some examples that, you know, when you read a book, uh, you know, fiction or watch a movie, right? Story does not communicate its truth, if you will, directly through explicit knowledge or explicit means, right? So it's not like, you know, at the end of the movie, you know, there's a statement that says, this is the big idea of the movie, right? Go go write an essay on that, <laughs> right? And and uh, reflect on that in a small group. No, you you feel the idea through the story itself, right? The climax of the story in particular, right? Through the actions of the protagonist. Uh, and I give some examples uh, of that. Uh, so one example is a, a movie called Martian Child. It's a great movie, not super well-known. John Cusick stars in that. And it's based on a true story about a, a young boy who's an orphan named Dennis. And he, and, so, and David is this is a widower and he adopts Dennis. And so it's about their relationship and that that it's called Martian Child because Dennis, the boy, uh, thinks he's from Mars and, you know, going through the movie, you kind of don't quite know, like, is, is this kid psychotic is, you know, does he really believe this or is this his way of coping with, you know, a lot of abandonment and pain. And so, you know, they go through a lot of ups and downs in the relationship. And at the end, there's this sort of all is lost, you know, moment and Dennis is, uh, just feels rejected. And so he runs away and he goes up on this tower really high up and he's waiting for his Martian family to come take him home right and he's 200 feet up in the air and you know up on this tower and david realizes you know he's run away he thinks he knows where he is he goes he finds him he sees him he climbs up to the tower and he says he'll wait with them and he kind of reaches out to him and so then there's this moment which is the climax where dennis has a choice right he can either continue down this path of just not trusting and just expecting everything's going to be the same and just you know, kind of going along with this Martian theme, or he can open himself up to the love that David is offering him. And so there's this big pause, right? And then Dennis runs into David's arms and he gives him this huge hug and, you know, whispers in his ear, I got my Martian wish because Dennis had given, given him a Martian wish. And, you know, his wish was that Dennis would stay with him, you know? So in that moment, when he runs into Dennis's arms, you feel the idea of the movie that when we open ourselves up to love, we heal and grow. And that is what changes us at this deep implicit level, right? It's, it's not just knowing the idea conceptually. You write a lot about suffering in the book. And I think uh, this fascinated me. Why do you think it's so important to suffer well, if I can put it like that. Right, right, right. And I, I do use that term in the book. Um, so yeah, first, that's another great question, Brent. Thank you for asking that. That comes up so much. I think one of the things I want to clarify right away is I'm not saying that suffering is good in and of itself, right? Or that we should seek out suffering. And I try to make that clear in the book. But we often, I guess a way to say it is that there's an opportunity to grow through suffering that sometimes 
allows us to grow in ways that we couldn't otherwise. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think part of it is that suffering tends to shake up our implicit models of how the world works and how relationships work. And we have to process the suffering in order to grow. It doesn't just happen automatically. There are people who suffer and shut down and don't process it. But there's an opportunity there to, again, grow in ways that we might not otherwise if we process it. And so, you know, we need to, again, it's a relational model. We need to get into relationships that are safe. There needs to be relational safety or psychological safety with people to process pain and trauma and to feel known and accepted and have space for those feelings. And that will lead to healing and uh, growth, again, probably in, in ways that you might not have otherwise, because it it shakes things up, mm. challenges. Yes, yes, I understand. Um, almost the last question, I think. Uh, how do we build better Christian communities? Because we've been talking about developing relationships and looking at the state of the, the culture and where we're all at. We're all feeling pretty battered and bruised, I think, and... So, well, certainly a lot of us are. <laughs> I am. Right. How do we reconnect? How can our churches and pastors and communities help the process of everything you're talking about? Yeah, another great question. Uh, difficult question. It takes a lot of work, but I think... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, this is, you know, we need to be having this conversation. I think part of it is, you know, so the first step is just recognizing the foundational importance of relationships in community, you know, spiritual community, Christian community for growth. That if that's not there, it's not going to happen, right? So, and I think a lot of churches have this, you know, sort of working model or implicit idea that, you know, if we just show up and teach and scripture and focus on explicit knowledge, change is going to magically happen. So I think the first step is to recognize and realize that's not the way it works. You know, the teaching, again, is important, but there has to be opportunities for deep relationships to transform us. And then we've got to structure our communities and church to help us do that. So, um, you know, we've got to create spaces to understand and deal with attachment issues. So I think there needs to, there needs to be some understanding and teaching about that, uh, but also smaller groups. You know, we tend to organize churches in larger groups with teaching that's focused on explicit knowledge. And that's great. I'm not saying get rid of that, but I think we need to balance that with smaller groups where there can be ongoing relationships um, that provide the soil, if you will, or the opportunity for deeper transformation. And, um, you know, because it's a, it's a messy process to grow and we've got to be in relationship to to do that. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is Robin Bunbar, Dunbar, who's a social scientist, talks about different sort of group sizes and tiers and that, you know, you've got sort of like tiers of maybe 5, 15, 15 to 150. Once you get above 150, it's really hard for people to have meaningful relationships. So, you know, when we have these larger groups, we need to break things down into smaller groups to create, you know, again, the, the environment or the conditions for growth. And we need to create relational safety. I mentioned that earlier. That's that's very important in these groups. So I think there needs to be training in churches around what does relational safety look like? How do you engage in conversations in a way that creates relational safety? And, you know, there are some great programs out there, but I think there needs to be a lot more of that as well as teaching and, and exploration of attachment, you know, like I said. And ultimately, you know, commitment to what I call long-term mutuality, right? Which is that I don't just show up 
to church for what I get out of it. That's part of it. But I've also got to be committed to building the community that I want to be a part of. Mm. Todd, where can people find you on the on the internet, social media? Yes. Yeah, so uh, main website, drtodhall.com. So that has kind of all the stuff I'm, I'm up to. And the, the book, um, The Connected Life, or sorry, connectedlifebook.com. Very good. I want to check out the book, and then they can yeah. they can contact me through that. Awesome. There's heaps of really interesting stuff there. Um, Todd Hall, professor of psychology at Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University, and the book from Intervarsity Press, IVP America, is called The Connected Life: The Art and Science of Relational Spirituality. Todd, thank you so much for your time, and we must thank must thank our creative team at Liquid Edge, who mm-hmm. sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Brent. It was great to be with you. So glad to be on the show and have this conversation. appreciate it. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.